This was very shocking to me. I had I was teaching at a very large agency, and it was a crime scene class. And the agency admitted to me that they don't even photograph all of the property. And I said, "Excuse me, what what did you say?" I didn't know how to react to that. Hey there, my name's Ashley Church, and I'm Erin West. We were once newly promoted crime scene and latent print supervisors on mutual struggle buses as we both simultaneously tried to navigate through the challenges within our forensic units. Now we run a business where we create tools and resources that we wish we had had to make these transitions easier. We like to talk about the experiences we've had in the forensic field, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hopes to create awareness around these issues and move the needle forward to create positive change in the forensic community. So if you're a forensic professional, regardless of your years of experience, who's not afraid to dive into real, raw, and sometimes uncomfortable topics, you're in the right place. This is the Forensics Unfiltered Podcast. Before we start this episode, our guests would like to share a disclaimer that the opinions shared are their own and not representative of their current or past employment. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. (laughs) So I don't know who here listens from the Southeast, but we literally just had a Category 4 hurricane just come across Florida, Georgia, South Carolina. So it's actually really nice that we have internet connectivity, no power lines are down. I think most of us fared pretty well, except for some flooding on the west coast of Florida. But we just got back from the IAI conference last week, and we ran into Mr. John Black. He's also featured on our Forensic Supervisor Success Summit this year, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So we're very excited to have him. It is my privilege. Thanks for reaching out. Absolutely. So... We have some interesting topics to chat about today that we know that our Forensics Unfiltered people will love to hear. Uh, But before we do that, why don't you tell them a little bit about your background? Be glad to. Uh, My background is in forensic chemistry. That's what my bachelor's is in. And I did some graduate level work in analytical chemistry as well. No degree there. My first job was as a drug chemist DEA in Miami. After that, I went to work for the state police in South Carolina, where I worked as a drug chemist initially for a little over a year. And then I got a lateral transfer to Leighton Prince in the crime scene where I wanted to be with the next 12 years. Then I went to work with Ron Smith and Associates as a consultant, senior consultant with them in their headquarters office, and then did four and a half years in their Florida office, which no longer is open, and uh, was a supervisor down there. I opened up Black and White Forensics after we left Florida, and I have been doing that now close to nine, ten years. That's about it. That's the Cliff Notes version of uh, my background. (laughs) That's everything in a nutshell. Yeah. Listen, I hated analytical chemistry. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Actually, you and my husband would probably get along real well because his major's in chemistry. He didn't do forensics, but he is in research and development right now with Thermo Fisher Scientific, like basically creating drugs. So (laughs) analytical chemistry to me was interesting and I could, I could understand that when I, when I took physical chemistry, my mind was blown. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, I was 100% one of those people in that class where, like, I think the first science experiment we had to make was, like, baby aspirin or something. Mm -hmm. And um, it was supposed to be white, you know, pure white, if you made it correctly. And mine was, like, some kind of, like, deep pink color. And then, like, I was just a mess in that class. So, yeah, I don't have super fond memories of analytical chemistry. Speaking of that, part of my training program with DEA, for me to pass my training program, is I actually had to make crack and meth. (laughs) Oh, man's got skills. Yeah, thankfully I have forgotten how to do that. (laughs) Fun fun times years ago, anyway. Those are fun facts, fun facts. So when we did the uh, summit recording, and many of you guys will see it soon for the 2023 Forensic Supervisors Success Summit, John had mentioned a little nugget at the end, just like throwing a bone out there to everybody a little bit about documentation. And so when we were talking about doing this podcast, John and I had talked about like deep diving a little bit more into documentation and just kind of how we do with documentation as a, as a science and, and discipline and how that varies so much from agency to agency. Uh, I mean, I myself have worked at multiple different agencies and the documentation has been all over the spectrum, depending on where you work. And so as a consultant, John, obviously you probably see all kinds of documentation that's coming in for your review. So what are some of the things that kind of stick out to you when you are brought in to help with a case as far as documentation goes or, or maybe poor documentation practices that you see? First of all, the, one of the main things that I'm seeing involves lack of documentation, both at the crime scene and in the laboratory when the late print examinations are being conducted. I get hired by defense, by prosecution as well. I've worked, uh, even worked a case for a coroner one time, so it doesn't matter to me who's retaining me. The answer is going to be the same. But the trend that I see is lack of documentation, and that's uh, that's a very dangerous game to play. This ought to concern everyone out here, what I'm about to say. I remember teaching a class one time, and they told me that, you know, well, this documentation thing you're saying is great, John. That's really good for you, but we just try to keep our documentation at a minimum because the more we write down, that's more ammunition the defense can use against us. I stand there and I say, yeah, and what's the problem? The problem is by you trying to minimize what the defense can say, you're basically hurting yourself going forward because we know that most cases don't go to trial. First of all, most cases don't go to trial, but when they do, they don't go to trial in six months. They go to trial several years down the road. And if you have intentionally kept your documentation minimal out of a fear of some defense attorney asking you questions, you're really, really hurting yourself and a uh, very, very dangerous game to play. And at the end of the day, if you did your job correctly, then it shouldn't matter if you provide that information to the defense or not, right? That, <laughs> that's exactly my thought on that is why, yeah. why you're going to hurt yourself by taking a risk of something that may never, ever happen. And if you're yeah. trained properly, if you're trained to competency, and if you've done the work and the reviewers, you know, found nothing wrong with your work product, why do you care who looks behind? Why do you care what questions get asked? You should be able to handle all this. 
So can we break down what you mean by like lack of documentation too, from like field work into maybe more of like the casework, like latents and stuff like that? Because I've seen some extremes, especially with crime scene documentation. Is it more lack of like describing the scene and your observations? Is it lack of information about like what you processed, how you processed, stuff like that? Like what can get you into the trouble the most, do you think? Well, all of that can be problematic. One of the biggest issues I find is that the crime scene photography is simply not as it should be. It doesn't depict all aspects of the scene. It appears that a lot of people just have the camera in the automatic mode because that's how they were trained and they don't know how to use their cameras in manual mode to adjust the controls on the camera to get you what you want. I was reviewing a case recently and all the crime scene photographs were 300 dpi you know and now granted it was an older yeah. case it was an older case so i'm not going to um you know hit them too hard for that but nevertheless even some fairly recent cases the photographs just are not as they should be and you can tell when i look at the uh metadata you can see what the settings were and you can see exactly why the prints overexposed you know, because they had their aperture wide open and uh, not enough, not a fast enough shutter speed just because they're in the automatic mode. That's one thing I would certainly suggest is don't shoot all your crime scene photographs in auto. It'll certainly work for a lot of the time, but there are times when it will fail you miserably. Yeah. If you don't know how to fix it by changing your camera settings, you're, you're not really providing a what you see is what you get depiction of the scene as you found it. I think that something like that is very easy to look up how to look up the metadata on their images or how to review that kind of information. But if we know that our comparison quality photographs are supposed to be at, you know, a 1200 or a thousand DPI or higher, then I would think that would be a very easy thing for a consultant to look at and be like, this is an issue right here. All these comparison quality or level photographs. If you are seeing an issue where people are just doing everything on auto, then you're probably seeing an issue too, where people are like taking those images in JPEGs instead of like raw or TIFF or NEF files, things like that as well. Correct. Yeah. A lot of those are not shot uh, in some type of raw format, especially the, you know, the comparison quality photographs. So that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's a problem. So do you think, because like, obviously sometimes we're working long hours, you know, we may just forget to put our camera in raw, but if it's such a perpetual problem, have you like done any dissection of why this is happening? Like, is it lack of training? Why are we still having issues of capturing comparison quality images? That's a good question. I think training is part of it to include how to ensure that your camera's in the proper perspective when you're taking these photographs. I use an angle finder, which is the best tool I've ever found to ensure that, you know, the camera is in the, the proper orientation. People say, well, I've got a level on my tripod. Well, that bubble level might be okay if you're on level ground, but when that bubble goes outside of that circle, you don't know how many degrees it's changed. And, you know, a lot of people still don't use tripods. They try to do the human tripod method, which is not a great idea. Occasionally, you actually might be in the right orientation, the right position, and you might get it right, but mm, not a good plan. Another thing that to your original question is that 
sometimes the the scene narrative does not really capture what was done at the scene it doesn't talk about any type of on-scene processing that you did uh, which i think is important to mention what you did on scene versus back in the laboratory the other thing i would offer is in addition to documenting what you do it also might be helpful to document things you did not do to protect yourself and help you refresh your memory going forward uh what i'm what i'm getting at is let's say that you uh you're doing a walkthrough on a residential burglary you're doing a walkthrough a cautious walkthrough and you know you obviously focus on points of entry points of exit any any area that's disturbed inside the location at the scene you're going to that's going to be a hot spot for, for processing and collection of evidence but during your walkthrough let's say you you get past all of that and then there's two other rooms toward the back of the house that don't appear to be disturbed in fact when you shine your flashlight at an oblique angle you'll see that there's undisturbed dust on the dresser most people are not going to process those areas for so it might be a good idea to document did not process these two rooms because there's no way you're going to remember that two and a half years ten years down the road when you ask about what you did or didn't do you're not going to have the answers if you don't document things like that which it seems kind of some people think that seems silly but you're not going to remember you know as the crime scene expert look kind of foolish not being able to articulate why you didn't process those areas yeah and I will say, like, kind of going back to what you mentioned before about, you know, agencies kind of hiding stuff from the defense or like not wanting to share everything with the defense. I have worked as a latent examiner. I have worked for departments where the documentation was very, very minimal. And I have also worked for departments where the documentation was very intense. And I will say going to court with the intense documentation, I feel so much more comfortable going to court and testifying like two years down the road with the extensive documentation. I also feel very comfortable sharing all of that if the defense or the attorneys or anybody asked for it. So it is, it can definitely be time consuming, but I have always felt like it, it gave me more comfort in my testimony having all that extra documentation done. I think that's reasonable and I would totally agree. When I started in late and print examination in, in 1995, going back a few minutes here, we didn't make examination documentation. It just wasn't done, for the most part, wasn't done, I think, probably throughout most of the U.S. And I was asking questions as to why we did things in ways and this, that and the other, because I want to I wanna understand why I'm being asked to do what I'm, what I'm doing. You know, the way that I document now is a total 180 from how I was trained as far as documentation. So for those departments that are still kicking it old school. <laughs> <laughs> kicking it old kicking school. Kicking it old school. Very hip, Aaron. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a few of them out there still kicking it old school. So for those departments that are doing that, and I mean, I've had discussions with supervisors over units like that myself where there has been the conversation of like, you know, we don't have time. Like we already have so much work that we're doing. We don't have time to do the extra documentation or even like they've never been challenged in court. So like, what's the point? Like all of that kind of stuff. What would you say to those departments that are, you know, hanging on to 
that it's not really necessary or it takes too much time to do that documentation from someone who looks at documentation as part of your living. It, like I said, it's a dangerous game to play. Just because you haven't been challenged or had issues come up in court doesn't mean that that's not going to happen at some point. At some point, it likely will. Uh, I'd rather be proactive than reactive. We, we don't want to see any agency have a, an issue where had they taken the time to document, they would have had no issues on the stand. But because they didn't, they're opening up themselves for unnecessary questions by the defense on cross. You know, if, you're, if your case file is solid and airtight and everything is transparent and people can understand, you know, why you did what you did, that is where you want to be. But just because you haven't been challenged or beaten up on the stand doesn't mean you won't be. I was teaching a class one time, if I can share this, and this was, this was very shocking to me. I had, I was teaching at a very large agency and it was a crime scene class and the agency admitted to me that they don't even photograph all of the property crime. And I said, excuse me, what, what did you say? I didn't know how to react to that. He said that we, that we don't photograph all of our property crime. There's too many of them. I said, have you ever had any problems with that practice when you're on the witness stand? They said, oh yeah, <laughs> but yet they were willing to take that hit. And I just don't understand. I don't understand how you can be talking about a crime scene that you responded to and not be able to show the jury the first picture of how things yeah. looked, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, I don't, that doesn't work in my brain. How much time would it really take, you know? Yeah, it kind of goes back to some of the other things that we've talked about on this podcast before, where honestly, I know a lot of people have feelings towards accreditation, but at least having some standardization in our field of science, it's critical and it's lacking. It's going to get to the point where it's not just these agencies that are going to take the hit and be embarrassed. Like it's going to be our field as a whole. So like going to a scene, it shouldn't even be a question like, obviously you're taking photographs. You shouldn't have that flexibility of like, oh, I just don't feel like doing that type of documentation. Like, no, it's just a common practice that you should do every time. Yeah. I think the longer I work in the field, you know, because when you start in the field, you have a very like small view of the discipline. And then the longer you work in the field, the more people you work with and departments that you work for, you get a much broader view of kind of like what's going on out there. And I think it is wild that there is not standardization across the the board like it it is it is wild what many departments are doing out there you know i mean i've known departments that literally are like we need a crime scene unit you're the crime scene unit here's your kit get out there uh i've known departments that have been like we want a latent unit i'm sending you to a 40-hour class you're the latent print unit now or not even a 40 hour class. Like we've had people in our classes who are like, yeah, somebody sat with me for a few hours on APHIS and now I'm the latent examiner. Like that is wild <laughs> to me, just wild. Part of the problem is that there are guidance documents that are out there, have been for years. Yeah. yeah. With, with, you know, with, with, with fingerprint discipline, you know, Swig Fast and also with the OSAC Friction Ridge Subcommittee, there was a lot of discussion about OSAC at the conference last week, people are on both sides of that fence. I mean, but the thing is, there's documentation available. There are guidance documents, I should say, that are available to people if they want to 
try to utilize that information to improve the quality of the work. But some people are just going to say, we're not playing the OSAT game. Don't, but don't be surprised if you're asked about this in court and then you have to explain why you are. I don't even think it should be guidance or an option. Like these departments, like for instance, if they wanted to like have a SWAT unit or have an aviation unit, like there's rules, <laughs> there's rules and regulations that they have to abide by if they want to provide that type of service to their community. So if they want to provide these forensic services, I think it should be like, if you have these resources, this is what you should be providing. Like, obviously, you know, some agencies aren't going to be able to afford all this fancy equipment, but if you can't even afford tripods and a decent camera, maybe you shouldn't have a forensic service. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a touchy topic, you know, because everybody wants to have their own crime scene unit. But there's so many departments out there that want a crime scene unit, but they don't want to invest in their crime scene unit. And so they're not going to get them the equipment and tools and training. They need to be proficient, competent, successful at that job. And so that's almost, it's, it's almost more dangerous to have that than it is to just pass those services off to somebody else who is well-trained with the equipment and the staffing that they need to supply that resource for your department. Right. We went on a wild tangent here. What yeah, I thinking too, because you were part of the AAAS report, right? Yes, I was on the working group. There were four of us. I was the only fingerprint examiner, however, on the working group. Yeah, but I feel like some interesting, like some of what we just talked about came out during that whole process, you know, about standardization and, and all of that kind of stuff when you were on that board. Yes. I mean, I enjoyed the experience and I think overall it's, it's a good document. It's just basically a gap analysis of things that could be done going forward and should be done going forward. Uh, we made recommendations that the NAS document, not, you know, give back in 2009. I enjoyed working on the project. It took a while to see the light of day. That body was anticipating doing a number of these for the forensic disciplines, but the funding went away for whatever reason, I don't even recall. But yeah, there are, that's one of the four prominent reports that fingerprint examiners should be aware of because the defense is aware of. AAAS report, the NIST human factors report, PCAST and the NAS report from 2009. One of those is almost in every motion that you see that is, that is moving to include fingerprint evidence in the case. And we haven't talked about this yet, but for, you know, the departments out there that are like, oh, we never get called to trial. In your experience, have you observed that defense attorneys are starting to get a lot more savvy as far as the sciences go and that people should be prepared for that? Without question, I would encourage you to be familiar because the defense is quite familiar with a lot of these documents. Yeah, as we should be as well. So when you are consulting, you already mentioned that one of the first things that you look for is kind of lack of documentation or photography for crime scene. And then as far as latents, what are some of the things that you pick up on when you're reviewing a case packet for latents of documentation that might be poor or missing that kind of calls your attention? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, one of the first things I look for is was a separate analysis conducted on the question impression and where's that documentation showing what that analysis looked like and is there any objective evidence 
that shows that they did that analysis prior to viewing the known just to try to see if there's if they made any um, efforts to minimize or mitigate bias and i'm finding that in a lot of agencies that whose work i have reviewed they've got nice documentation forms i can clearly see why they made the decision that they made but the images are the proper resolution some of the documentation packets i've seen are just outstanding and in those situations i get back with the attorney and say okay i've reviewed the government in my opinion i don't see any way that you can attack this uh do you want to report and they'll say uh, no <laughs> thanks don't want to report thank you and and the cases that have really good documentation and like i said if i can't find any issues with it then i feel like that that decision that they made is going to withstand scrutiny going forward and i just make the attorneys aware of that and say you're likely not going to make any headway challenging this you may want to find some other aspect of the case that you can litigate that's good that would be comforting i feel like well, just I'm just giving the information, you know, and they'll do with it what they yeah. want. On the other end of the spectrum, where there's minimal documentation, I'll just simply say these are some things, Mr. or Miss Attorney, that you're going to want to probably delve into during your examination of, of this witness. Because these are things that should have been in there. They're not in there. So Ivan will provide sample questions for them to use. Whether they're working for the prosecution or the defense, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're a prosecutor or defense attorney if they're doing direct or cross. So I do have a question as far as quality of documentation to help you as a consultant. So we talk a lot about trying to bring forensics into the year 2023 and using the technology and resources that we have available, but a lot of people are resistant because they learn something one way and they kind of don't want to make that adjustment. So the difference between like, the documentation of someone looking at a print under glass versus Photoshop, do you find it's easier to see like how they made their conclusions because you can see that metadata kind of like you were describing with photography skills and techniques, you can see if they were using the right settings and stuff, you know, similar things like that as far as like latent comparison documentation? Yes, I mean, I think you definitely have more information you can evaluate when it comes to digital images. If you receive the latent lift and that's all you get, or at least a, a scan of the latent lift, whatever it is, they're likely not going to, you know, give me the evidence. Obviously, you know, I'm kind of limited as to what I can evaluate as far as just a latent print lift goes. Maybe I can look through an incident report, and maybe there'll be something in the crime scene notes about how we lift, how we process this print, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When it comes to digital images and, of course, the use of Photoshop or any other type of tool like that, you can weigh in maybe a bit more on the parameters of the image, et cetera, et cetera, and gain some insight. And we also have to assume that I'm getting, whoever is a consultant, are we getting exactly what the government had? Sometimes I don't get exactly what the government had, and that's not a fair playing table, let's say, to speak, a fair table, because they might have better quality images than I'm getting, and that's, that's not ever going to work. I've worked cases where... I receive evidence and there are the latent lift is actually not on the glossy high contrast side, but it's actually on the back of the card where it says, you know, sketch. It jeopardizes quality. And then sometimes there's no information as to where the lift came from, who took the lift. And that is just ripe for being thrown out. I shudder to think at what my case work looked like 20 some years ago. 
when I was starting and there was no documentation. And but I think that's it. a good thing to mention is, I mean, they're going to look back at us 20 years from now and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did stuff that way. But right. we can't continue doing it the same way for forever. Like Correct. you look back at your old casework and you're like, oh my gosh, I would never but you've progressed over time. And so we still see a lot of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of departments that are like, well, this work, this has always worked for me. So there's no reason to change it. But I do think we are required in this science to grow with the science. Like we can't just keep hanging on to that because it worked for us way back when we started, like things have changed and we know, I feel like we know at this point that documentation is required like that we should be doing it. So if we're not doing it, we're just kind of, you know, holding on to some of those old excuses, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that feels that way. <laughs> no, definitely. When you know better, you do better. So like back in the day when you didn't have that level of documentation, well, you know, there's a reason for that. And now we're doing better. But like you said, with all of these things that you're bringing to light, as far as bad documentation, I feel like a lot of these people actually do know better. They just refuse to do better. <laughs> and that may be, but anytime you fail to acknowledge improvements in the technology and you realize that okay if, if i'm now considering these things as well and it's going to it's going to affect my documentation don't let that dissuade you from completely documenting what you need to document but if you resist change and don't keep up with current research and documents that are being produced by different bodies it's going to be problematic for those folks at some point if they just simply refuse to look at the advancements and improvements and try to incorporate that into their workflow. It's definitely easier to do a little bit at a time than 10 years down the road, be like, okay, well now we have to make all these changes. And that makes <laughs> it less that. likely that those changes are gonna be made because now it's this True. mammoth project versus adapting along the way. It's not that big of a deal, you know, Very but true. if you're, to your point, if, if you haven't done anything to your SOPs for the last 15 years, might be time to revisit those. For sure. All right. Well, thank you, John, for being with us today. If people wanted to learn more about black and white forensics, where can they find you? Where can they go? Uh, my website is bwforensics.com. And my email is john, J-O-H-N, at bwforensics.com. Like we said earlier, if you guys want more of John Black, he is part of the 2023 Forensic Supervisor Success Summit. We did an interview style conversation there uh, because John, shockingly enough, is an introvert. And so he was sharing some tips for the introverted leaders out there, how to put themselves out there and grow in their presentation skills, which is really vital for a supervisor. If you guys want to check out John's lecture at the Forensic Supervisor Success Summit, his presentation will be going live at 2 p.m. on September 21st, 2023. So we hope to see you there. And again, thanks for joining us for another Forensics Unfiltered podcast. See you guys at the next one. Thank you so much for being here and listening to Forensics Unfiltered. If you liked this episode, would you do us a favor and leave a review letting us know specifically what you liked about this topic? It will only take a minute, but it will really help us plan future episodes so we can bring you more topics that you want to listen to. We'll be sure to provide any links from today's episode in our show notes on our website. 
head to www.gapscience.com. Until next time, stay safe out there.